2 Samuel chapter 7. And uh, this week I've had you read from 7 through chapter 10. But this is going to today address probably, I'll be honest with you, one of the most difficult personal issues I have in my Christian walk. That I am sure many of you wrestle with as well. And we're going to see it pretty clearly here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's going to deal with this question. Why should I even pray? Why pray? This is, to be honest with you, my number one area of guilt. To, uh, to my logical mind, sometimes, and I'm just saying to my fleshly, logical mind, sometimes prayer seems so useless. I have formed a conclusion after many years of wondering why this is, because it's a battle sometimes to even pray. And here's my conclusion. I, I came to why, why prayer is so difficult for me. might not be for you, but I have a sneaky suspicion it is. Is because prayer is everything we are taught not to be. Prayer is everything we are taught not to be. For instance, as a kid, you may be considered unbalanced and someone to watch closely if you're ever caught talking to an invisible friend. Who's Chris talking to over there in the corner? Watch that kid closely. Kind of strange. As an adolescent, you are told you must work hard if you ever want to make it in this world. Get off that couch, you lazy bum. Work hard. And then as an adult, we are encouraged to always find a solution to our own problem. You've heard where there's a will, there's a way. Or the biggest one now is just get her done. Get her done. You got a problem? Get her done. Prayer, on the other hand, if you really think about it, prayer, on the other hand, requires us to wait for our invisible friend who promises to do for us exceedingly abundantly above anything we can ever ask for, hope, or think because he's the only one who can fix our problem. It's completely diametrically opposed to what we're raised to believe. That's why it's so hard. Prayer is the last resort because it goes against everything I am and I've been taught to become. It really is. Today, we're invited into what I would say an intensely intimate. This may be, if I can be honest with you, Paul has some amazing prayers, but if we could see, if we could rate the scope of just spiritual intensity, this may be the most intimate moment of prayer between God and a man. It's David and God are having a conversation. And just like us, prayer was not David's first option, believe it or not. He had other things in mind, but soon God taught David, woke him up, confronted him, and through prayer, David realized sitting at God's feet is the most profitable place to be. And the reason why is because true are his promises. That's the title of our message today, true are his promises. So we're really going to take an take a in-depth look at just one chapter, chapter 7. 
But to begin, I want to begin in verse, the middle of it, verse 18. And watch how 18 talks. It takes a posture. Watch how it reads. It says, Then King David went in. He's talking about going into the tabernacle of God. He went in and he sat before the Lord. So David sat down. It's a position of subjection. It says David sat down before the Lord and he said, Listen to what he says to God. It's very intimate. Who am I? Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. So this is for us, too, to learn. Verse 20. And what more can David say to you? Because what you're going to see, what God talked to him about before, David is speechless. I don't have anything to say. In other words, that's vernacular in ESV for I'm blown away. I'm speechless. What What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. And then look at verse 21. Because of your promise, and according to your own heart, You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So he's attributing everything to God. But he didn't at first. Look how it opens up in chapter 1, verse 1. Watch how it begins. Seems rather innocent until you really hear God's response. Verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, Hiram just built him this incredible house. Remember last week? He came into Jerusalem. They ate a party. They had trumpets. They ate cakes and raisins. The Ark of the Covenant was in there. They had the mighty men surrounding. uh, Now David is in his household. The Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So David is done with the party. He's done fighting. He's as the king. And that word rest just means this. So David has a moment to just look around. Look at verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, Nathan is the voice of, the voice piece of God. God speaks to Nathan through David. David goes to Nathan to get wisdom. So he goes to Nathan, the prophet. Says to Nathan, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar. I mean, this is a nice house. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So this is how it begins. Begins kind of cool. David wants to do something good for God. That's the point. I think one writer has a good theory about the opening scene. Here's how he imagines it to be. And so I want you to look at what I just read with this context. He believes it was a dark and stormy night in Jerusalem. A storm front has come in, and over the Mediterranean sometimes you get squalls that come in pretty quickly. He imagines David was probably running his fingers down the new trim of his house, seeing the cedar that was cut just nice by Hiram, this incredible architect. He was probably sitting in the back in his massive sitting room overlooking the city because David's house is on top of a hill in Jerusalem and he's overlooking the city. And as he was listening to the howling storm and watching the heavy rain flowing off the rooftop, he noticed, looking over at the tabernacle, that's a tent where the ark was underneath, and a tent was made out of fabrics, not cedar wood. 
seemed vulnerable. Probably the corner of the tent was flapping in the gusts of wind that were coming off the storm. And so David thought to himself, man, I got it made, but, you know, I should build a house for God too. David only wanted to do something good for God. He's just like us. He's just like us. We see apparent need, we see a problem fixed, and so we have to do something about it. Our first option always is to act. We want to do, get something done. David felt he could help God out of the kindness of his heart, so he figured, I better get busy and do something. I better get busy. And I, you know, I mean, honestly, when you read this, it was out of the goodness of his soul towards God. I also wonder, I'm not sure, I'm just, I know me, I also wonder, maybe he felt a little guilty sitting in this nice new house while God's poor little ark was vulnerable. Have you ever felt these guilt pangs that come into your heart when things go your way while they might not go for other people? I I'm that kind of person. I run to guilt because I know how bad I am and how much I don't deserve anything. So guilt rules me. My poor wife has to deal with that all the time. I feel guilty almost every day. I'm not kidding. I, I think God's been way too kind. What do I got to do today to kind of pay him back a little bit? I still have residual, what I'd say, medieval Christianity in my soul. You know, Martin Luther used to whip himself to kind of pay, pay God back. Sometimes I feel I have to pay God back by doing good things. It's a bad habit. Oh, some of you have that. It's called Christian guilt. I wonder if that's what David was dealing with. But I'm not sure. But I tell you what, reading these first three verses, I can understand why David would want to do this. He loved God. He wanted to do something for him. Maybe, I don't know, was he thinking he was going to help God out? So Nathan, in verse 3, said, David, I'm with you, man. Go. Do all that's in your house, in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So it looks good. Well, Nathan, the prophet of God, in verse 4, went home. Went back to his place. God met him. Look what it says in verse 4. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. In other words, it's kind of like, not so fast, Nathan, just a second. Look what he tells Nathan in 5 through 7. Verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So when they left Egypt, they would go into the Sinai desert and they would have the tabernacle that they'd carry wherever they went. They would hitch that tent and put the ark inside. That's what God's saying. I've never had a house. Do you ever remember I had a house? Verse 7, In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So he's, you notice how he's even saying, David, I know you got this house of cedar. Have I ever, ever once wanted a house of cedar? Here's what I think is happening. First of all, this is strange, If God, God's response to me. Strange. Because I'm made out of the same stuff David is, 
and I view the world like David does. And so are you. We're human. Our humanity, our humanity gets in the way of the way we relate with God. It really does. When it comes to being human, we often forget who we are in comparison to who God is. This is a terrible, terrible problem. It really is, I'll be honest with you. The word human comes from the Latin root hummus or of the earth. It means we're of the earth. It means we're made of dust, clay, ash. We're dirt. And often in our daily lives, we can't see past what I'd say the mud puddles that are all around us. We look in the mud puddles and say, aren't I amazing? I'm amazing. We're just dirt. I believe what's happening here in this passage, God is reminding David who he is in comparison to the living God. Keep in mind what just happened in David's life. He was victorious over the nations with his army of mighty men. He was crowned king after waiting for 20 years. He's promoted above all of his brothers. He has this new house, this new palace, overlooking truthfully in his eyes the world. He's on top of the world. Have you ever smelled fresh-cut cedar? Oh, it smells good. What a house he lived in. So you could say from a human perspective, David is quite a guy. He probably thought about that himself. I've made it. I've arrived. And since he's so grateful for knowing that God got him there, he's going to be benevolent back to God by dispersing some of his greatness back. We'll make God a house too. We fall into this trap. It's a terrible trap. It doesn't look like it's a trap. It looks like David just wants to do a good thing. We, in our hearts, say, look what I can do and just think what I can do for God. God has to be so proud to have a guy like Chris Weeks on his team. Don't you think? Wow, that's my guy. It's kind of scary situation because we think this stuff. It's that same feeling some people have when a famous athlete or celebrity turns out to be a Christian. Do you know Justin Bieber's a Christian now? Hey, hey, God must be quite a God if Justin Bieber believes in him. Do you know Kyrie Irving believes in him? Goes to the same church. Wow, really? Oh, maybe God is real because Kyrie Irving, who can throw an orange little ball in a round hoop, believes. <laughs> we somehow give God credit because we give people credit. That's strange. We do it all the time. We really do. Maybe God might be worth listening to after all because, boy, some, there's some really famous, popular people that believe it. It's strange. Psalm 50, 21, God warns people to be careful thinking too highly of themselves. Be careful if you're placing yourself on par with the living God. Listen to what Psalm 21 says. You thought... He's kind of upset. He says, Israel, you thought I was one like yourself. That's where you get it wrong. How easily, one commentator writes, how easily our imaginations can be captured and our energies exhausted by what we want to build for God. And the key word is we. Without really consulting, we are going to do it can ask it like this. What can you do for God that will really impress him and help him? Some people will move to the other part of the world to show how much they'll do for him. Some people work themselves to a frenzy. 
and a church project or outreach or class to impress God for others. Some people think by just showing up to church in their Sunday's best, God is going to be blown away. Look at Johnny Fantastic wearing a tie. Wow. He looks nice, God thinks up there. Very impressive. But the truth is, just between you and me, we're dirt. Wow, that's kind of belittling to us. What about self-esteem? I think God's point here is very simple. When he says that he never asked for a house from the, early, the other Israelites earlier on, never. He is saying, I never needed a house in the first place because I'm God. And listen closely, God is in need of nothing. Nothing. David wanted to do a nice thing for God, but God doesn't need anything. David's niceness may be partially blinding him to God's greatness. Did you know God doesn't need? I know this might sound blasphemous. God doesn't need our prayers. God doesn't need you to go to church. God doesn't need you to tithe. And I know the elders and deacons don't like when I say that. But he doesn't. God doesn't even need you to come up with new programs, incredible ideas to attract followers to him because if we didn't, poor God, nobody's going to believe in him. He needs us to come up with an idea. Need, the word need, inherit.
never forget the human that you are. David, I don't need a house. And then he's going to go on and say, not only that, but remember where you came from? Look at verses 8 and 9. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord God of hosts. So he's saying, Nathan, this is why I want you to tell David. This God told me this. Remember, David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. Stop. That's where you began. You were worthless, the youngest son, and you watched sheep. That's where you were. I took you there. And then he says, then I, I'm the one that made you prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. So you think it's you and the mighty men? I did it. It was me. So in other words, what God is reinforcing in David's mind, and I, and I don't mean to belabor this point, but I have to to get you to realize it. David, think about it. You are dust. And as dust, he had nothing to offer God to increase his state of being. A being made of dust will not be able to help the eternal God. It's interesting in Genesis 2.7, it says when he made man, says the Lord formed him from the dust of the ground. But there he was. His body was formed from the dust of the ground. But he had to breathe into his nostrils life. Gave him his living being. So this piece of dust had no capacity to move until God breathed into him. It was that breath that is everything. Where do you think you get that breath from? In him, we live and move and have our being. I find it ironic that we can ever think we can give back to God or that he needs something from us when the only reason we exist and have anything is because he first gave it all to us. In Psalm 103, verse 14, it says something very interesting. The writer is talking about how I need, his, I need his forgiveness. He's so good, he forgives me. He's delivered me from the pit and he's crowned me with loving kindness and tender mercy. And so he says how he's separated my sins as far as the east from the west. And then in verse 14, he says... He pities me because he remembers that I'm made of dust. You're probably like, all right, enough of this dust stuff. Enough of this. But I want to belabor the point to help you realize what prayer is all about. Prayer is about need. It's about helplessness. It's about needing to be filled. It's about needing his life. As one man once said, I love this phrase. It's, it's so short, but it makes so much sense if you let it sink in. Hunger is the best cook. But here's the strangest part, and this is where you can be very depressed saying, wow, I'm just dirt. But the best part of all, and what we're going to see from the rest of this reading, is God sure loves this piece of dirt. Oh my goodness. Psalm 18, 19, David writes, Do you know why God rescued me? Because he delighted in me. Doesn't. He doesn't see me as dirt. He sees me as his son or daughter. That's the most incredible thing. When he gives me his life, I carry his image, and there's something new about this being. Our worth is priceless. And because he delights in us, 
which is to me still too good to be true, He wants to bless us. He wants to bless us. Just as in Genesis where God breathed light into the dirt, He wants to continue to breathe life into us to take this clay that's tired. Are you ever tired and weary? And really you don't know, you don't, you don't have wisdom. It's funny, in the book of James it says, it's a, it's a book written to tire, weary people, and it says, when you have troubles and tribulation, ask God for wisdom, and he will give it to you. Because he knows we're dust. So how does he breathe life into us? This is the hardest part for me. Because some of you, I mean, we're all mechanically minded, meaning Pastor Ken did a VBS message and he talked about a light. But the only way to get the light to shine is you've got to plug it in to the source. So the question is, how do I get his life? Has God given me a way to receive his life so I can breathe again and be brand new? Second Peter says it's through his promises. Second Peter 1, 3-4 says it's through his... Let me show you. I didn't have this, but you need to see this. Second Peter, chapter two, starting in verse three, or chapter one of Second Peter. I would I would ask you to meditate on these when you go home because if you, I still don't understand this. I'll be honest with you. There's some things in the Bible I just think are beyond us, so I just have to accept it. But watch what it says. Starting in verse 3. His divine power, that's God's power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Meaning, this is what's going to give us life. Breathe back new. Through what? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So knowledge is the plug that plugs into the power source. Yes, but what kind of knowledge? Verse 4 is how God's knowledge comes to us. He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that, lie, that is in the world because of sinful desire. So He connects us with Him through promises. His promises exchange or breathe His life into me. So as I accept His promises and live in them, I wake up and I'm brand new. Watch, let's go back to 2 Samuel. Because this is what happens in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 10 through 14. And watch how many times God promises to bless David. It's overwhelming. In fact, as a side note, scholars think this is the most important portion in the whole Bible. It's called the Davidic covenant, meaning from this point on, the whole Bible, the whole Bible is going to move to fulfill these promises. You'll understand what I mean in a second. I call this the will of God. If you want to know what the will of God really is, watch how many times God says, I will. Ten times. Starting in verse 10. And, all right, let's begin in 9. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut you off from your, cut off all your enemies. Remember, David, I did everything for you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their place and be dis disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. 
from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Ten times he said, I will. I've broken it down into six bite-sized pieces, but these are his promises. And I want to show you, true are his promises. But it's these promises that all of our harp, our hopes are built on. You'll see what I mean. Start the first one. He's going to make to David, he says, David, I'm going to make your name great. That starts in verse 9. I believe this is specifically referring to David himself and how he's going to exalt his name on the earth. Not just at the time he was alive, but throughout generations. Actually, it's so true, I can't even believe you. Believe it. 2 Samuel 8.13, he was becoming such an incredible general that it says David was beginning to make a name for himself. <laughs> I think he already did. I think he already, when he brought the ark in there and everybody, I mean, thousands of people are, you know, excited, the king's there. David's name was being made. Later on, he's talking with this Mephibosheth. You'll, you'll learn about him in a second. Mephibosheth called David an angel. People think your voice is like the angel of God. They love David. God fulfilled this throughout his life. It was obvious. Even today, if you go to the Jewish community, their hero is David. If you go into most Christian churches, ask David. David was a man after God's own heart. True are God's promises. Second promise. He says, I will plant my people Israel and give them peace. I believe this is going to happen in two stages. It initially happened at the moment of David's death in 1 Kings 2, 10 through 12. It says David's kingdom was firmly established. It's the same idea. It was planted. But the ultimate fulfillment will be found in a person by the name of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 24-25, you can write that down and look it up later, says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. True are God's promises. Third one, God is going to raise up a son who will build his house. Again, I believe this has two perspectives. David wasn't allowed to build the house. We learned here later we're going to learn one of the reasons why is he was a man of blood. He shed too much blood. We'll learn that later. So he says, the son that comes after you will build your house. In 1 Kings 8.14, Solomon came along. And it says he built the tabernacle, the house for God. But really, what we learn later in the New Testament, the real house, the real house that God is really wanting to build is the resurrected body of Christ. I will tear down this house, in three days it will rise again. That's the ultimate fulfillment of this, and true are God's promises. God's house is dwelling in the heavens right now. Number four, establish an eternal throne. There's only one person who can fulfill this because eternal means never-ending. There's only one person who never ends. There's only one person who was the same yesterday, today, forever. 
Hebrews 13, 8 is Jesus Christ. I want you to go to Luke. Watch what Luke 1 says. If you don't believe me, this is the most probably powerful promise in the Scriptures. Watch what happens at Jesus' birth. And, and often we hear this in greeting cards and songs during Christmas, but in light of what we're reading, it will go, Oh, I see. Luke 1, 32 and 33. So let's start in verse 31. The angel's talking to Mary, and he says to Mary, Mary's Jesus' mother, the angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you'll bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. Now look at verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Does that, does that resonate at all with this promise that David's getting? It's exactly it. That's because true are his promises. They're true. We go back to Second uh, Samuel again. A couple more things he says. He's gonna. God calls David's heir his son. It's fulfilled twice again. Solomon was given a name Jedidiah, which means the beloved one of the Lord. Solomon's name was Jedidiah. However, there is a guy that came later in the New Testament who came out of the water and God with a, with a dove said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's interesting when Jesus told the Pharisees he was God's son, they didn't like it. He says, I got a, I got a riddle for you. Psalm 110 says, the Lord said to my Lord, look at my right hand. How can David look ahead to his future son who's going to sit on his throne and call his future son my Lord? And the Pharisees are like, we have no idea what you're talking about. It's because they didn't get it, that Jesus was going to be the Son of God, but God, who is David's Son, who is David's God. It's crazy. And then the last one is the most interesting one. This is a, this is a lot of debate. Look at uh, verse 13 or verse 12. Actually, verse 14, sorry. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now watch how it's written. Because it's written somewhat different in other versions, but it says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. So the first reading is the idea that if your son, who's your heir, sins, he will be punished, which Solomon was, David was. All the rest of the kings were. They were punished every time they sinned. They weren't exempt. However, there's an interesting phrase, they will be punished with the stripes of men. A lot of scholars are saying, this is referring to your son who is going to sit on the throne is going to be beaten and receive the stripes of men. So the cross up there, before he went up there, remember he was lashed? The cat of nine tails, 40 times minus one. Jesus bore our stripes. The king was killed for us. True are his promises. So the question could be, here's David hearing this from God. Okay, he's hearing this from God. 
And you know, when we read in the Bible, like when I just read from 2 Peter, that's a promise that says if you accept these promises, you will change. Godliness will come. How do we know God's telling us the truth? You see, because we are dirt, and as dirt, it's hard to see past our mud. In other words, in the same way David forgot how great God was to some degree, we also assume that God is going to behave the same way other people behave. So other people that we live with promise us things every day, and most of the time they're lying to us because dirt disappoints. Dust disappoints. We're liars. The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And often either we don't tell the whole truth or we obscure the truth or to us promises are possibilities. So we'll promise something, but if some other option comes up, we live in a generation that says that's a better option. We do this all the time. We just do, you do this all the time. I can't tell you. I just am, this, I guess it does irk me. When people want to get married, often they'll come to me for counseling, and I will tell them one of the greatest things you can do as a married couple is just be faithful to church. It, it establishes patterns. And they said, Pastor, when we're married, we're going to be as faithful as you can be. They weren't faithful before, but man, now that we're married, we will be faithful. Rarely do they ever come back. They just wanted me to marry them. And I don't get offended by that. But how many times do we say those kind of things to God just so he'll perform for us and then we forget everything we said? So what happens is when God promises us things, ooh, can I trust him? Because sometimes we assume God's promises are made out of the same flaky, crumbly, dry pie crust promises as other dusty, dirty humans make to us. So why should God be trusted? Verse 15. Verse 15 is amazing. So he goes through these ten I wills, and he says this in verse 15. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Meaning you and your offspring. Here's why you can trust God, because of his steadfast love. You know the song? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. New every morning. Every morning. One scholar said this phrase here is love is the Hesed love. It's the word that often is translated mercy, meaning he does not treat us as we deserve. And this mercy is flows to us like streams of water that never dry up. The love of God is what gives power to his word. He is trustworthy because his love is also unconditional. That means it's not based on your performing for him. So because David built him a house, is he going to treat David better? He's like, no, I don't need a house for my promises to come true. The reason my promises come true is because I love you. The reason God's promises are going to come true to you is not because you come to church. It's because he loves you. Galatians asks that question, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Not I, but Christ lives in me in this life that I live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Why do I live by the faith of the Son of God? Because He loved me. How do I know He loved me? Because He gave His Son for me. 
That's on there. The Second Corinthians one twenty is amazing. Paul writes, every promise of God, every single solitary promise of God is yes in Christ. It's a great verse. And then here's what happens to me when I believe his promises. His life flows to me. I'm tapped in. I'm plugged into him. When I believe his promises and walk in his promises, that life enters into me. I don't know how to explain it, but it does. And there's proof in the pudding. How do I know he has transferred life to me? And we'll just kind of finish quick at the end of Samuel here. I love. Because when God loves me, I love others because love loves. So if I believe God and I live in his promises, his life, his life, just like an electric current, comes into me. And his life is love. And how do I know his life is in me? I love. I don't force it. I just, I just do it. I'm patient with people. I'm kind. I keep no record of wrongs. I keep no record. That's so hard. When God loves me, I love others because love loves. David was known in the book of Acts, which is thousands of years after he died, as a man after God's own heart. Not because only did he want to be with God, not because he wanted what God wanted, but became, he became a different kind of king. He was no Saul. He was different. In chapter 8, verse 15, Listen to what it says. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. He was fair, because love is fair. Love is just. Chapter 9, verse 3, it said, And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? So he said, Now that I'm king, I know Saul attacked me, but I made some promises to Jonathan. I'm going to be kind, because... Love is kind. He went to this guy. Look at verse 5 through 10. King David sent and brought him, this Mephibosheth, from the house of Machir, the son of Amal, to Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face, paid homage, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. David said, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And verse 10 said, he was able to sit at David's table to eat dinner with him every day because love loves. David spent time with God in prayer, and prayer secured the love of God, and David had nothing but kindness for people that once really treated him bad. And in first, uh, 2 Samuel 10, 2, he said he wanted to render justice to the nations around him to be loyal to some people, but they didn't trust him, and that's a bad thing not to trust David, and they shame it's a long story. I don't have to get into it. Here's my conclusion. Here is what prayer does. Why do I pray? Why do I spend time with God? One reason. It changes you. It changes you. It is like calling home from college. I remember my first year in college, I was scared to death. I was only 17 when I first started college. And I, it was a pretty big college down in Southern Ohio, University of Dayton, and I would be scared to death. I would tell my mom and dad I, couldn't, I, can't, I can't pass my classes. No, I'm not going to have any friends. 
You know, I just all of these thoughts came to my mind. I'd call up. My dad would say, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Don't worry. I went to school. I remember those days. Chris, you're going to have so many friends, you won't know what to do with them. Just hang in there. I remember hanging up, and I felt different. And then every once in a while, I got to go home to be with my family. And I remember I'd be tired. I'd say, oh, I hate that class. My mom would say, yeah, but Chris, you're learning a lot. Pain always gets you to growth. And I remember she would change my mind. And to me, prayer is like those individual calls to your dad. Church Sunday is like going home for the weekend where family around you gives you what you need. Fear, worry, anger, complaints. Prayer changes your mind and gives you another day to go fight. But the question is, are you tapped in to God's love? Do you pray? Because it's hard to, really, for me. But if I understand it rightly, it's not something to do to pay God back. It's something to do to give me what I need to receive, to change. And if you don't love, it's probably a good chance you haven't spent some time with God and His promises. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, I pray, number one, and here's my prayer, God, it says if we ask for your Spirit, you'll send Him. And I just pray that you would fill us with your Spirit. There's another promise that says in Psalm 1, if we meditate on your Word, we become planted like a tree next to streams of water where we have full fruit in our season. Give us a hunger for your Word, God. Please help us be planted. I know, God, there's promises that say in Philippians, if we don't Grumble and complain. We're going to shine like the stars in the sky. Help us not to grumble and complain. Father, I know there's promises that talk about being kind one to another, being patient so that love may grow within its midst. And I just pray that, God, we treat each other better than ourselves so that we can comfort one another and so that humility will reign. Holy Spirit, fulfill these promises. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.